0: Journalists and athletes are collaborators together. You know, I, I refer to, you know, the athletes being these conduits which new, through which news and information travels.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to reexamine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. Before the integration of Major League Baseball, Hundreds of African-American athletes sought to escape Jim Crow and eke out a living by playing in Latin America and the Caribbean. African-American journalists exchanged letters and telegrams with ballplayers, and some even traveled themselves to witness the transnational competition. These sports writers brought back more than just game stories and box scores. They saw how black baseball players achieved status and fame abroad that was not available to them in the United States and their articles critique the color line in professional sports. These athletes and journalists help expand the freedom dreams of African-Americans in the decades leading up to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball in 1947, and before the civil rights struggles of the 1950s and 1960s. On this episode of the Journalism History Podcast, we examine their advocacy efforts with Brian Campbell, a PhD graduate from the history program at the University of Illinois. Brian, welcome to the Journalism History Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it.
1: We're happy to have you here. We're going to be talking about your article in the latest issue of Journalism History entitled African American Sports Journalists and Athletes as Foreign Correspondents for the Black Press 1930 to 1950. And you describe how hundreds of African American baseball players left the United States to participate in Latin American leagues during this period. And sports writers from black newspapers followed them and documented the ballplayers' international experiences for audiences back home. Some athletes themselves even wrote featured stories for news publications. But your article begins more than 100 years earlier with the African-American foreign correspondents from the early 19th century. So can you start out, Brian, by telling us who were these early black correspondents and what were they writing about?
0: So the early black correspondents in the 19th century are focused more on uh, abolition. Um, they're focused on uh, you know, the, what is happening to black Americans during Reconstruction, right? Um, and so what I'm doing in the beginning of the article is to really describe how early on, right, uh, the black press, I think, is really looking internationally uh, for inspiration for uh, domestic politics back home. Right. Um, so we know that Ida B. Wells, uh, for instance, travels in the late 19th century to uh, to England um, to you know lecture, but also write uh, about her experiences. Um, you know, other uh, even before that, abolitionist uh, activists, right, are uh, sort of looking abroad and framing their news stories and articles uh, you know, about uh, ideas about freedom uh, from uh, an international uh, perspective. So, you know, in the beginning of my article, I really want to sort of lay that groundwork to show that, uh, you know, the black press, well, you know, back into the 19th century and especially around the turn of the century, I think is really beginning to, you know, look abroad, uh, for inspiration uh, in, in domestic politics, uh, and also to, you know, find examples of, you know, what I, sometimes they I call real or true democracy, uh, social democracy in other parts of the world.
1: Sure, and you had mentioned Ida B. Wells extending her activism going to Europe, lecturing in England and Scotland, another name that our listeners might be familiar with, Marcus Garvey's Negro World, uh, and the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, covering wars, imperialism, accomplishments of African-descended people. And then moving a little bit along in history, you describe how during World War I, Black journalists connected the experiences of soldiers in Europe to struggles for citizenship rights at home. And after the war, the number of correspondents increased as Black-owned newspapers experienced spikes in readership and revenue. And now we get into the period that is really at the crux of your research here, the 1930s to 1950s. Black newspapers at the time had an activist style, you write, with social commentary that advocated on behalf of African-Americans. And they looked to Latin America to find examples of progress in race relations. So What did they find and bring back to their audiences
0: in the United States? So, you know, really, I think, beginning in the the 1910s, maybe even before that, um, you know, uh, black journalists and and editors like Robert Robert Abbott of the Chicago Defender are really looking for examples, I think, again, of What what true social democracy could look like in the United States? So they're traveling more, they're writing about these places, and you know I think what they're doing in part is you know um, framing places like Cuba, uh, for instance, as these racial democracies, places where black men in particular, um, but black women as well, uh, you know, have access to. Certain um, uh, social statuses and occupations and accommodations that really don't exist for Black Americans uh, for the most part in, in the United States. So they're pointing out, they're, they're traveling and commenting and pointing out these examples to build up, I think, this idea or this imagined sort of idea of what, what uh, Latin American nations as racial democracy. So, you know, in part, my work of, of covering athletes, I think, is, is a, you know, part of this broader movement, this bigger movement by uh, journalist and, and editor to see Latin America as this very progressive place, these nations in Latin America as these very progressive places um, that could be used, you know, for inspiration, um, uh, both real and imagined uh, back home. And you had mentioned
1: Robert Abbott of the Chicago Defender. Your article describes how he called Brazil the land of opportunity for black entrepreneurs. Uh, African-American athletes also began to garner attention not only from the black press in this period, but from white newspapers as well and across the globe, not just in the United States. You describe a few athletes in particular Jack Johnson, the heavyweight boxing champion who traveled to Europe, Australia, Cuba, Mexico in the early 20th century, and Jesse Owens, the track and field star who claimed four gold medals for the United States at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. So how did reporters from the black press and the mainstream press cover Johnson and Owens?
0: Yes. So, you know, in the case of Johnson, Johnson is a a very complicated figure in the sense that the, the white mainstream press going back to his, you know, his first fights in, in the uh, early 20th century, you know, really wrote about Johnson in, in a way that demonized him, that racialized him, um, and propped up white uh, boxers, um, uh, especially in matches where, where against, against competitors like Jim Jeffries, um, where, you know, uh, uh, journalists saw... Uh, white journalists saw this as sort of a a, a way uh, for, as you know, for, for white boxers uh, to assert their you know their their masculinity, but also the, a particular white uh, 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 masculinity, right? Uh, in in comparison to to fighters like uh, Johnson. So you know, I, the the way the the white press covered Johnson uh, was often in a way that was very negative, right? Um, whereas the black press really wrote it, saw, you know, Johnson's fights against white competition um, and, and, and celebrated his victories over white competitors. And these were, you know, not just symbolic, right? But, uh, you know, they had a very, I think, real effect on how black Americans um, uh, felt at the time, right? That, that Johnson's victories over uh, white competitors, you know, were these, you know, very, very important real victories over white supremacy um, uh, or you know, to white supremacy. And so, you know, the black press is covering Johnson and really making him into a race hero while the white press is, is mm-hmm. very much like demonizing him. When it comes to, to, to Owens, it's very different, right? Because of the context, I think, uh, of, uh, of the, the, the 1930s and, and the rise of Nazism. And, you know, I think the white press is now covering Owens in a more positive light, but still, right, obviously the black press is propping up Owens and seeing Owens in a very similar way um, that they did Johnson as this race hero. Sure. And you
1: have, again, some very compelling
0: excerpts from these articles that you've
1: researched. A Baltimore Afro-American sports article noted that Owens' win over the German competitors would quote, bring universal reverberations throughout the world, and uh, I guess it did because even today we're still talking about it. Um, another article here from Afro-American saying it would blast away racial prejudices dominating many units of the American sports field. It's We're still working on some of those racial prejudices, of course, in athletics and in many other areas of society, but uh, a big impact that Owens had. And then you go into while Jack Johnson and Jesse Owens traveled abroad for some prominent competitions here and there, African American ballplayers made those international trips much more frequently than a boxer or a track and field star might. Hundreds of these ballplayers supplemented their salaries in the Negro leagues in the United States by playing in the numerous Latin American leagues. So, where were some of these ballplayers playing? And how did journalists use them to create a narrative about racial equality in Latin America and the Caribbean?
0: Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, great question. Um, so, beginning uh, in you know around like 1910 or so, uh, again Cuba uh, being this uh, this sort of primary destination for for Black Americans at the time, Cuba, the the Cuban Winter League, the Cuban Winter League baseball league, uh, you, you know, you begin to see. Um, uh, a handful of of baseball players like uh, uh, Rube Foster from Chicago, who is a, both a player, promoter, owner of the Chicago American Giants, taking his team to Cuba to play in exhibitions. And soon after that, uh, Cuban Winter League teams are recruiting um, uh, ballplayers like John Henry Lloyd to come play. Uh, for their teams. And this begins what Adrian Burgos uh, refers to as a transnational baseball circuit that linked places like Havana to New York and Chicago, where you start seeing the movement of both Latino and African American ballplayers between nations, right? Um, So it's it's in that context um, over the 1920s and the 1930s that these journalists are writing. And in the 1920s and 1930s, More leagues uh, open up, especially in Puerto Rico and in Mexico, uh, and you have uh, more ballplayers going to to those places, uh, those countries, um, as well as Cuba. uh, Really, in the 1930s. So, uh, when when I say there are hundreds of ballplayers traveling uh, uh, during this period, you know, it's really into the late 20s, uh, the 30s, and the 40s where that really uh, we really start to see that. And then you know these journalists then you know begin to you know become aware of these these journeys that the ballplayers are taking because um, you know if you're if you're a, a journalist in uh, New York like uh, Dan Burley who I talk about in my article um, you, you're already covering some of these ballplayers who play for their respective Negro League teams in the summer months and then will travel during the winter to supplement their incomes and. In you know, let's say Mexico. So when those ballplayers come back, uh, they're, you know, stopping by the sports desks, right? And they're uh, describing their experiences uh, to these sports writers who then are able to, uh, to narrate um, and talk about uh, these experiences. And now a quick word about another podcast
1: you may be interested in. Hi, I'm Mark Simon. On my podcast, The Journalism Salute, we spotlight important and interesting journalism organizations and people. The goal of our show is to introduce you to different perspectives and different careers in the field. We talk to reporters, editors, publishers, and professors. There are so many great groups to learn about. We're also here to show you that journalists are not the enemy of the people. That's The Journalism Salute, available wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're thinking about athletes in the major leagues making millions and millions of dollars each. You know, the top stars making 10, 20 million dollars potentially a year. But at this time, you're describing how these players in the Negro leagues might be earning 200 to 300 dollars a month, and they could make more for a shorter time in one of these Latin American leagues. Uh, and as you're closely analyzing these black sports pages and finding how baseball players communicated their lived experiences to journalists, through letters and telegrams. I thought this was interesting, and I wonder if you can give us a little bit more context there. One of the first black ball players to travel Latin America, who you mentioned before, was John Pop Henry Lloyd, and he wrote to a reporter in 1927 about how black baseball players had performed admirably in the Cuban Winter League. Another player wrote to a journalist, now 20 years later, 1945, that it was a quote-unquote darn shame that the major leagues continued to shut their doors to African-American athletes. And it's one thing for these reporters to interview players before or after a game. I think we're used to that as someone who researches sports myself. Of course, I'm familiar with that. But I was surprised to read that these players were actually taking time to write detailed letters to journalists. And I know it's a different age when letter writing was much more common, but that's still a pretty big investment of time. And what do you make of that, Brian? It seems like these players were playing a pretty active role in helping these journalists highlight how differently they were being treated abroad.
0: Yeah, this is a really, really good question, and it's one that I've, you know, dwelled on more. I think even since writing this this article, and it becomes a really big part of my dissertation. It's actually, I think, at the crux of my, you know, my main argument of my dissertation that i you know, that I'm working on, and and, and that is that journalists and athletes are collaborators together. Um, I think I talk about in this journal article. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I refer to, uh, you know, the athletes being these conduits, which through which news and information travels and I've dwelled on that a lot more thought about that. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like through these letters and these telegrams it reveals to us that there are these really like intimate and, um, you know, close relationships that black journalists are, are building with ballplayers that help sort of facilitate this exchange of, of information. So, you know, uh, there are numerous articles where journalists say, you know, um, just received a letter recently from someone like John Henry Lloyd, um, and he tells me, you know, how the black ball players are performing in, in Cuba, and he'll, you know, and the ball players will provide like statistics, you know, almost uh, like box scores, right? Um, they might include uh, news clippings or something that they, they could send along as well. Um, and we also, you know, we see this later on in the 1940s with uh, Jackie Robinson and Wendell Smith uh, from Wendell Smith from the Pittsburgh Courier, who had a very close relationship. Uh, Wendell Smith was, you know, a part of uh, the, the campaign really to desegregate uh, baseball, working, working closely with the Dodgers and with, uh, with, with Jackie Robinson. And and if you go to the baseball hall of fame, um, and look at Wendell Smith's papers, you, you see these telegrams and these, these handwritten letters right between Robinson and Smith, uh, where, uh, uh, Robinson is describing his, his experiences during spring training, uh, uh in Cuba, 1947. Um, and so it, it does show us that, you know, it's you know they're inter- interesting the way you framed it right it's not it's not as if you know journalists are going and just interviewing a player after the game they're really forming these relationships right um that i think help uh in this you know this transference of information and of knowledge between nations It's almost like
1: an alliance in a way that we don't quite see that play out today. I know a few sports supporters who are friends of mine and describe the lack of access that they get to the athletes. Um, And certainly this idea that you would just be opening up your mailbox and having letters coming in. Of course, it's a day and age before emails and text messages and all the other modern forms of communication uh, that now reporters and athletes share. But I think it's still something that uh, kind of stood out to me and shows just how involved these athletes were. Um, And then the reporters are using these stories from the letters and telegrams to actually go ahead and criticize Major League Baseball. You write how during the 1939 World Series between the New York Yankees and the Cincinnati Reds, one sports writer chided Major League owners for not allowing African-Americans to compete and suggested that when the black ball player returned from the Winter Leagues, he should, quote, take his bat and glove and head for various major league spring training camps and demand immediate inclusion. So they were pretty bold here, Brian. Did that surprise you about, we were talking, obviously we're going to get into Jackie Robinson, but this is almost a decade before Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And these reporters are maybe shedding some of their objectivity and demanding that Major League Baseball include African-American players.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it it was surprising for me to see that in the 1930s, because I, you know, it makes sense in the 1940s, especially during the World War, um, when, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Couriers Double V campaign really takes off. And, you know, you start, I think, you know, you really start seeing more, uh, more of a push um, uh, among uh, not only journalists, but you know, other activists at the time, uh, in, you know, in, uh, Paul Robeson, um, uh, in, uh, you know, many other, uh, many other folks out sort of outside of even the, the sports realm, um, that m- are making, you know, desegregation of major league baseball, a civil rights issue. Uh, but, but, you know, as my research shows, like even back into the 1930s, right, these, uh, you know these journalists are again building these relationships with ball players and, and they're learning right about the potential for desegregation uh, by looking outward right and and understanding that black and white players are you know uh, uh, you know competing in games together in interracial leagues in other parts of the world, very close uh, to the United states in in the case of the Latin American leagues and so you know. I think coming across quotes like that um I think that one's from from uh FM Davis coming coming across quotes like that you know uh you know is it was a little shocking to me right um and and how they sort of the way they framed it to say like you know these ball players are proving themselves in Latin American leagues they know they're good enough uh you know these Latin American leagues are really showing them how good you know, they could be if they, they, they only had the chance to compete uh, in the major leagues. And, and to be that, then, you know, as you said, that bold, right? Um, uh, to, to say that based on those experiences, that the ballplayers should demand immediate action, right? They should go and just, you know, uh, really just sort of forcefully uh, try to desegregate the game. Yeah, I think that in the 1939, that, that was a bit surprising for me to see. And we know today there's a debate
1: in Major League Baseball, maybe not even a strong debate anymore, that folks like Josh Gibson, who didn't have a chance to play in the prime of his career in the Major Leagues, could have been maybe one of the greatest Major League stars of all time if he had been allowed. Um, And so that is an argument that lots of people make. Um, So they were ahead of their time, certainly, in calling it out. Uh, And then as we begin to wrap up here, Listeners of this podcast may remember an episode that we released last August with Ray McCaffrey, a historian at the University of Arkansas. And if our listeners want to go back in our archives on the podcast app, that's episode 58, Jackie Robinson After Baseball. And I had interviewed Ray. He had written an article for Journalism History about Robinson's activism after he retired from the game that he integrated. Robinson wrote columns in support of Muhammad Ali's right to refuse military service and a boycott of the 1968 Summer Olympics. And Brian, you describe a reporter traveling to Cuba, this is obviously before Robinson breaks into the major leagues, to follow Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers in the spring of 1947, right when he's preparing to break the color barrier. And then you note how Robinson wrote an op-ed about racial inequality years later for the Chicago Defender in 1963, after his career had concluded so. In my interview with Ray, we focus mostly on what those columns said about Robinson himself. You know, maybe there's a stereotype. There's this image that we get of Robinson as kind of genteel and accepting. He turned the other cheek on the field. And then we read those columns and we see, well, no, he actually was an activist, certainly after his career. But in that episode that I do with Ray, we really didn't discuss how Robinson was following in the footsteps of many of these black ball players before him, the ones that you've studied in this article. So why do you think it's important for our listeners to put those pieces together, to know the stories of these athletes, not just Robinson, uh, probably the most famous of all of the ba- black ball players of this era or maybe any era, but why is it important for them to know the stories of those who came before him and have in a sense been lost to history?
0: Yeah you know this is it's this is such a a really good question and i think that um you know it's in part it's to really hammer home the and, and understand that desegregation was a very 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 long process um that you know obviously did not uh uh you know it wasn't it wasn't just robinson's moment right in in, in 1947 and desegre you know in in Issues didn't just end right um, uh, in uh, in nineteen uh, you know, forty seven, and so like to you know for me to um to study the history of black baseball and, and communication sort of considers that really long process right, and to understand that Robinson was really built upon years of of efforts. Uh, to desegregate and uh, years of ballplayers not making um, the, you know, the amount of money that their major league counterparts made, right? And and I always say this, that like, desegregation is also really, really, um, uh, you know, the big thing about desegregation is, is it's really tied to labor, right? And so these ballplayers, in part, you know, their motivation for traveling abroad, traveling to the Latin American leagues was to earn extra income, was to supplement, as, as we were talking about salaries, to supplement that income. And so they, you know, they really, you know, they had to do that. Um, and so in thinking about Robinson's moment, I, I do think it's, it's incredibly important to think about all of those ballplayers that, that came before him, but also the journalists that were involved, um, that, uh, you know, sort of foregrounding that relationship between journalist and athlete and why that was important to help build Robinson's moment in 1947.
1: Well, congratulations on this terrific research. Again, diving into the archives and all of these uh, newspapers that often don't get a lot of scholarly attention from the black press and showing us the relationship between the ballplayers and the journalists. And as we wrap up today's episode, I'd like to pose a question to you that we ask all of our guests to finish the podcast. Why do you think journalism history matters?
0: Yeah, that is such a great question. Um, you know, I, you know, for me, I didn't initially start studying, you know, the history of journalism. Um, my initial project, when I started working on my dissertation, uh, focused more on the lived experiences of the ballplayers, uh, in, in Latin America. Uh, but then I, you know, I realized there was something particular about, again, that relationship between journalist and athlete that, that I want to look at, uh, much more. And that really led me to studying the history of the black press and, and, you know, taking a whole summer, uh, so the summer of, I think, uh, uh, 20, 2017, 2018, uh, just to really, really immerse myself in the historiography of the black press. And, you know, the one thing that I've discovered is that um it being a sort of activist press right it it taking on not being n- not afraid to take on the the major issues uh, affecting black americans um of the day uh really resonates i think in our our contemporary moment right um and i always you know studying the history of of sports in the black press, I make these connections or i try to make these connections uh today to. Uh, new forms of media like the players Tribune and uh, the you know the undefeated and these uh you know these sports blogs and and media sites um, that are really emphasizing uh the role of of sports and its connections you know to politics and and this is you know this is something there's a long history of this of this, obviously right going into the early twentieth century so I think to understand you know that the sort of new media right now, um, you know, we really want to sort of dive in and, and understand sort of the history of the black press as a sort of activist press, right? Uh, well uh, well into, or back to, right, the, the early 20th century.
1: It certainly speaks to the power of the press, and I think for someone like myself who was supposedly classically trained as a journalist, you know, went to journalism school three times uh, and was a reporter, I think we tend to think that anything that is not objective uh, journalism, if that truly exists, is bad. Uh, And then yet we see what these journalists were able to accomplish and highlight and make society changes that are obviously good. Uh, So I'm glad that you were able to bring that to us and add to our knowledge. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you, Nick. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks
1: for tuning in. And additional thanks to our sponsor. Taylor and Francis. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon. signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.